0: Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Get ready, tennis fans. The new John McEnroe documentary, McEnroe, premieres today on Showtime. I spoke to director Barney Douglas about what made McEnroe one of the most dominant and controversial figures in the history of sports. Hey, Barney Douglas. Hey, thanks so much for joining us on WTOP in Washington, D.C
1: pleasure Jason thanks for having me
0: we're here talking your new movie uh you're directing the documentary McEnroe all about tennis legend John McEnroe it's gonna premiere on Showtime I believe September 2nd so I just watched it last night it flew by for me I thoroughly <laughs> enjoyed it uh what what sparked it for you were you always a big tennis fan or you know what what gave you the itch to make this now
1: I mean good, good question um not uh, knew tennis obviously knew the sport not a massive fan was aware of McEnroe's latter days um and obviously him being a very angry man in that in the the sort of my distant memories but you know the opportunity came that john was looking to make a film so i went and met him and obviously started digging into his life and truly thinking god this this guy is fascinating and one of the greats, and that's kind of been forgotten and, and, and washed over by obviously some of his antics. So um, I thought, well, there's a lot to dig into here as a filmmaker. And what I really love is, you know, the humanity of a story and really trying to show the the spirit of McEnroe and answer some of the questions, that I guess, that people have asked throughout his career. So it seemed like too good an opportunity to turn down. And it's been yeah a really revealing journey, I think.
0: Awesome. Well, um, let's, let's try to, uh, there's so much covered in the documentary, um, uh, but let's try to move chronologically as much as we can. So um, let's talk, talk about him growing up. I I love the little story in there. It's very telling of his personality and his drive and everything um, his perfectionism, but uh, remind our audiences, uh, the story about him, you know, not being satisfied with, with his report card.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah. His wife Patty tells the story early on about him being six and and getting an A minus and, He just couldn't handle it he was just so upset that he hadn't managed to like get absolute top marks and at six years old that obviously betrays this inner drive and this sort of lack of being accepting of any kind of failure he obviously saw success as the only means i think and this is going to sound quite deep but i think the only means to really accessing kind of love and affection he felt like success i think was key to that Um, and that obviously unfolds throughout the story of the film um, but it is so revealing early on that in his childhood, enjoyment was was second best to achievement.
0: That's a good point you've made about it. It, it, success. And in this case, through tennis is his only access point to uh, love, affection. I mean, you could say fame, fortune, all that. But, mm. you know, love and affection is probably the deeper thing tied up in that ball um well speaking of sort of that i mean that that that's a good segue um you know growing up he he didn't he even says he didn't think tennis was was that cool you know he started playing a little you know down the street or whatever on the courts but uh talk about how that whole that whole concept changed when it did suddenly become cool it did become in vogue i mean you know in the in the 70s uh this, this explosion of pop culture uh acceptance of, of tennis is, is this famous thing to do talk about how that that was the allure that sort of pulled him in.
1: Absolutely. And I think he got sucked in by characters, you know, he got sucked in by the Connors and the Bjorn Borgs of this world. You know, he was seeing this beautiful, like, as he calls him, like a Greek guard, even though obviously he was Swedish, um, you know, um, and girls just chasing after him and screaming after him, like he was a member of the Beatles or something. And obviously this caught a young John's eye without doubt, but he also just had this, natural ability to play tennis as well. I think the way that John's brain worked, he could mathematically like break up the court and start to play percentages. so it suited his mentality as well. Um, so but suddenly he was seeing that it was also pretty cool. yeah the girls came along with it and the glory and the adulation um, and that certainly sparked his interest and and it went on from there.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, you're talking about McEnroe and, and Borg and Jimmy Connors. And how do you say the other one? How do you say uh, it?
1: Vetus Gerolitis. Yeah, Vitas Gerolitis.
0: Yeah. They're like the four kings of tennis. And because I just did a four kings uh, interview like a year ago for Showtime, they did a yeah. great thing about boxing with Leonard Hagler, Hearns, and uh, Durant. Uh, so I kind of got similar vibes with this. I mean, obviously, it's mostly about McEnroe, obviously. But talk about how sort of those four personalities – Really pushed each other to be better on the court, hung out even off the court, and you know, and ultimately when Borg leaves, uh, McEnroe almost feels betrayed. Like, hey, we're we're on this ride together. What's up?
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that certainly that culturally the sport had characters then. It was kind of this cusp of not going from amateur to professional, but there was this, you know, you'd drink after and you'd go out and you'd party hard and you could swear on the court and you could get in contact with the crowd. And, you, you know, there was all this kind of vibrancy to the sport that I think John still misses quite a lot. Mm-hmm. So McEnroe, I think, is perceived as this guy that came in and just, you know, started being ill-disciplined and yelling and screaming. But it was a lot, it was going on before John arrived. You know, like he may have taken it up a notch or two, but he, it was absolutely going on. Nastase was there and all this kind of stuff. So he kind of got in amongst this crowd and it just brought the sport to life. You know, it connected with people. And I think that's what John always has been searching for his whole life, connection. And you mentioned Borg retiring and walking off court, never to be seen again, essentially. I think there's a love story there between John and Borg and he does feel betrayed. He feels bereft when Borg yeah. walks away because it gave him this connection, you know, it gave him this thing that he'd been searching for since being six years old, you know?
0: Oh yeah. And their matches that we see together, it's, it's, it's art. It's them pushing each other <laughs> in competition. And then when Borg leaves it, what was he like 26 or something? 20, like that? Yeah.
1: 25, 26. 25, 26 pretty, yeah. So, so young.
0: He's like, well, I, we're, I lost my dance partner, you know? So, um, yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned a few seconds ago, I want to unpack it a little more about how his brain sort of saw the court, the tennis court, almost like a chess board. And you you, you really brilliantly, you know, use sort of visual graphics to show, you know, even like the grid of, of the percentages of if I hit it at this little small spot, I have this 90% or whatever of, of winning the match. Um Talk and, and even his wife, he sort, she sort of mentions that you know maybe he was on the, a little bit on the spectrum or who knows, but the idea that that he sees the court in in a different way. Talk about how you as you know as a filmmaker as a director say we're going to visually try to try to capture that.
1: Well, that's really it is really challenging because if you don't know a sport but you want to make it you know accessible, I guess um, to try and visualize that is really key. And I think for me, John's brain was the way in. As you mentioned, Patty mentioned that he's kind of she thinks he's probably neurodivergent i think when you put all the pieces together i think it's 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 pretty clear like he he has this incredible ability to assess situations mathematically very quickly but he finds emotional connection difficult so we sort of le- lent into that with the kind of tron-esque 80s graphics and just tried to show and break down how John would analyze the court and not see it as like an actually emotional reaction. It was actually very, very mathematical. And it made sense to him. And then I think that starts to tell you something about when he felt that something is out or not out and the umpires make these mistakes and they're a bit blind in England and all this kind of stuff. (laughs) You can see why it tapped into his frustrations because he mathematically knew the percentages so it, you know it really drove him crazy and i think also not being listened to was was another trigger for him as well so yeah trying to visualize that as a filmmaker was a lot of fun actually but and i hope yeah i hope it communicates it in the in the way that we we tried to do
0: oh you totally do you well so like you you use the your toolkit visually and audially um you know to show sort of both sides of that coin so you see you you show the digital grid um to speak to you know the on the positive side of that coin you show how he's this like almost instantaneous split second mathematical genius and but then on the downside you sort of use the sound design to show almost how it could overwhelm him distract him you know he's so highly attuned that you show you know with the sound design you show him here he picks up every sound like that what is it there's that brilliant part where it's like he's hearing crackling of like the tv radio airwaves he's hearing every slurping of the soda cups in the stands or whatever like talk about how how that was sort of you, you're trying to show both sides of that you know
1: absolutely and like, you know there's strengths and weaknesses to these these magical powers and these superpowers <laughs> yeah you know they really are and i think those are the challenges john's face and that's why people always found it hard to understand his decision-making in these moments because it's not driven from, you know, like a, a calculated decision. He's reacting to stimulus. And I kind of feel like that to me also as a filmmaker, even in documentary, like the, all these elements, the sound design, I'm really pleased you mentioned that because there's such powerful tools that you can use to create an experience and try and, let an audience know how John was feeling and try and immerse them in that scenario. You know, film is entertainment and it's about communicating stories. So using all those different tools is absolutely for me like a lot of the fun in making a film, trying to make somebody feel how John felt and understand him therefore, and to feel empathy for him rather than just anger all the time.
0: Right, right, exactly. And I mean, you mentioned it a few seconds ago, but these gifts can be really, frustrating to him and you know he's he's most i mean he's really well known for all these outbursts and meltdowns and yelling at the the judges you know like you cannot be serious all that stuff slamming his rackets um but to your point he's 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 seeing it almost like he sees it in his brain that you know what what we can see in the replays that the chalk did fly and so like he's he's actually seeing it and he can't believe that these little stupid judges don't see what he's seeing so true talk about you know how he became like a pop culture figure for these meltdowns. Do you think that sort of overshadowed some of his brilliance, like being able to take a ball that's going so fast and just put a little bit of spin on it and just like dies? We see it in the documentary. Talk about the, the, the contrast between the meltdowns, which is his public persona versus really, he's really a master at what he does.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I didn't know how good he was going into this film. You know, it was a, it took me by surprise what a truly great magic player that John was. And that has been overshadowed by his outbursts. And some of that, you know, is a lot of it's his own making, you know. And I think what but I think what communicates when you say about becoming like a kind of pop culture icon and rock stars wanting to hang out with him, all this sort of stuff, it's authenticity. That's what rock and roll is meant to be. It's like meant to be truth and yeah. and you know good for good or bad. It's someone being themselves and being authentic. And I think that's exactly what John is. And that's why I think he retains his appeal. Sometimes it drives people crazy. Sometimes it really people really it resonates with them. But I think what people really appreciate is sort of behavior that is authentic and not Machiavellian. He doesn't try and make you like him. He doesn't try and do all these different things. He just is who he is. And I think that's why he um, appealed to so many yeah, rock and rollers at the time. And even now in
0: Yeah. And I think it was speaking of rock and rollers. I think it was really cool that you got, you know, Keith Richards to sit down for an interview. <laughs> that, that's a fresh interview, right? That's not. Yeah.
1: Right. No, that's completely new. You know, like we had very little, little time, you know, we like <laughs> I literally just dove in there and um, and grabbed a few words from Keith, but it shows, as you say, the resonance that he had at that, that period of time the so sort of early mid 80s you know meatloaf pops up and santana gets him on stage to play guitar with him and all this kind of stuff yeah.
0: well and of course billy jean king that's probably the biggest yeah. get get for you in terms of you know sit down interviews other than McEnroe himself but you know billy jean king is a legend talk about what it was like interviewing billy jean king absolutely like
1: billy jean was just an absolute joy you know she's She's a poet. She's kind of a force of personality. She's a force of nature. She's an icon. And I think she brings so much like lyrical feeling to the film. You know, John is a very literal person. And, and I think sort of drawing out those descriptions is harder with John. So but Billie Jean Keane gave us that, that description of tennis as being, you know, an art form and you know, like, like a th- these, like can, the theater, she said. Yeah, before. the yeah. theater, exactly. And she just brings this understanding of John as well. Like That was one of the things that we were really keen is to have a small circle of people that knew him intimately to yeah. talk about him rather than perhaps you know journalists who'd met him once or twice saying what they thought he was like. We wanted people right. that knew him. We wanted it to be very personal. And Billie Jean brings so much of that to the film.
0: Definitely. And uh, I know we're short on time, but I guess uh, talking about interviewing people that knew him, I mean, no one knows him better than his own family. And you get Mm -hmm. you get some sit downs with them, too. Um, I was struck by, you know, the 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 tricky relationship with his father. You know, he's like a mentor to him for the longest time. Um, You know, you always see him in the stands during all these big victories. But then later when he sits down to interview him, he's like, no, by the way, i Did you say that I'm I'm McEnroe senior? I'm not a senior. He's a junior, but I'm just me. I'm not a senior. Like it, it, it seems like a, a lot of tension there with with him and well, love love for sure. But you know a lot like you can tell that the dad did a number on him.
1: Yeah, well, I think it's that's the kind of the heart of the film in a way. For me, it's John's John trying to find connection with his own father that wasn't just about success, wasn't just about achieving in sport, and then trying to have that relationship with his own kids and yeah. not make the same mistakes and and have the same disconnections. And that's something he's still working on, but I think he is, he has learned. And I think for me, that's the last half hour of the film. It's really about like that kind of resolving grief or, or unresolved grief, I should say, and then trying not to make the same mistakes as, As the father type thing. So there's a real like kind of (laughs) generational sort of trauma that that, that he's trying to make sure doesn't carry on. And I think that that takes it beyond the normal sports biopic into something a little bit more personal for sure.
0: That's such a good point because when you're interviewing the the kids and they tell that, story, yeah, they're they're the kids of him and, um, you know, Tatum O'Neill is first yeah um that great story about there there's this priceless like what what do you call What's Andy, the word who, I'm like, Andy, Andy Warhol painting yeah um, yeah. lucrative painting and they just he just draws a draws a mustache on it because yeah. mom and dad are fighting but he, but we get out of the turmoil and we see you know him remarried and you interview his you know his current wife and he seems to have found you know happiness at least you know comparatively no, right? I think
1: he's found acceptance Accepting. you know like I think like yeah I think that's I think someone like John is never going to be at peace and as he says, he's not sure he even want to be right. you know i think that's what keeps this fire burning in him but he wants to be himself and he wants to be accepted and he wants to feel that connection and feel that it's genuine and i think with patty his second wife he found that and you know he's working on keeping that with his kids as well and i think that you know, that's that's what life is, isn't it? It's messy and it's not quite perfect. And it has these continuous little ups and downs and peaks and troughs. And I think that's what I really love about the end. It's not like a neat bow, but it feels like he's he's moved on. He's got somewhere, you know. Exactly.
0: Well, we appreciate your time. I guess a final question, like um, when 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 it's all said and done when the history of McEnroe is written you know, the takeaway here how many how many titles did he ultimately win what's the the legacy the the final stats that are going to be hard to top kind of a takeaway no, he,
1: he john McEnroe, won 155 combined titles so that's mm. majors doubles singles yeah. all that kind of stuff which is still to this day the most of any tennis player which yeah. which makes you realize actually that's where he stands in the, in the pantheon of the greats yeah
0: Absolutely. But in terms of the non-stats tennis stuff, what's, what's the takeaway from the film? Is it this journey of acceptance, the, the perfectionism that never rests? What, what is it?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the search for perfectionism a, is a curse. And to never be satisfied means that you probably never find peace. Yeah. Um, and some people need that to drive it on. I think really the big lesson for me is that, you know, what really matters is connection, you know, and how you find that. It's, I think it's got to be between two hearts, not between what you do. You know it's what you are i think more importantly right. exactly
0: well i thought it was a riveting documentary so thanks so much thanks for, man. Ma- thanks for making it and uh for chatting with us again everyone this is barney douglas the director of the documentary Row. it's going to premiere on showtime on september 2nd so set your dvrs now <laughs> hey thanks so much
1: pleasure man thanks very much